This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Even if you boost the immune system and the amount of viruses coming in is huge, it will overwhelm the immune system. However, even if it overwhelms the immune system, because the immune system is boosted, it has a better chance of fighting it off, right? So even though it's being overwhelmed, you have a good chance of fighting it off. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss vaccinations and boosting your immunity naturally. We'll learn how peanuts can be a part of a healthy diet. We'll explore the concept of resilience through perspective. And lastly, we'll find out how to support aging skin. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on this show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? Very good, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure. We're going to talk about something we've talked about before, but in a little bit different way today, which excites me because, you know, we're going to talk about immunity and we'll get started in a second, but then we're going to talk about vaccines. So let's talk about how to boost immunity. Where would you like to start? I want to start about talking about the mechanics of boosting the immunity. And by that I mean, you know, we, we toss around this thing called boosting the immunity, right? And yeah. Everybody says boosting, but nobody really talks about what are we actually doing when we say boost the immunity, right? Because there are very many different ways of boosting the immunity in our body you know, the immune system is very complex. It's not a single, it's just not one thing you do and it covers everything, right? Mm -hmm. Much as a lot of people would have you believe, right? So here's the thing with the immune system. The the most important part, I mean, if you look at the skin, intact skin is part of the immune system. If you look at how do bacteria and how do viruses get into your system? Well, it goes through the nasal passages, it goes through the throat, right? Any wet tissue that, that exposed to the outside, okay? But what people don't realize is that there are guardians at all these ports of entry, meaning if you look in the nose, in the nasal passages, there are white cells who basically do nothing but just hang out there and wait for bacteria, wait for viruses to come in, right? So these are like your early warning systems, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at your throat, same thing, right? There are white cells that hang out in the, your GI tract, etc., just waiting for these things to happen, right? Your skin, 
is if it's intact, it's very impermeable to viruses and bacteria. But that being said, if you get cut, right, it allows viruses and bacteria access to the blood. And that's another route of infection for different diseases. Like, for example, if you're looking at Ebola, right, one of the routes of access is from body fluids. So hmm. it gets access either through your throat or through cuts, etc. Okay? Mm-hmm. Or something like COVID gets access via the nasal passages. So when we boost the immune system, what are we actually doing? Well, a lot of the things that we use to boost the immune system, what they do, they make the white cells more active. So it makes the white cells more active in the sense that the white cells, an analogy I'll make is like they go into training. They basically become kung fu experts, right? So instead of killing one bacteria, the white cells can probably kill off 10 bacteria, okay? Now, that's one of the things that it do. Another thing that it does, it makes the white cells pump out more antibodies. Now, I'm giving you a Reader's Digest version of all of this stuff because it's much more complex than I'm making it sound like, okay? Yep. But this is the basic Reader's Digest version. Now, one of the things about what, when we say boosting immunity, what people don't realize is that if we boost immunity, all right, it makes it, the white cells more active. But if I only have 10 viruses coming down the throat, for example, your white cells are more than active enough to kill off those 10, 10 viruses. But what happens when I bring in 500,000 viruses? Well, all of a sudden, if your immunity hasn't been boosted, you have a hard time dealing with 500,000 viruses. And what happens when you have a million viruses coming in? So what, it, what I'm basically talking about is the viral load or the bacterial load, right? The initial load that's coming into you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So even if you boost the immune system and the amount of viruses coming in is huge, right, mm-hmm. it will overwhelm the immune system. However, even if it overwhelms the immune system, because the immune system is boosted, it has a better chance of fighting it off. Right. So even even though it's being overwhelmed, you have a, a good chance of fighting it off. Now, what are we doing? What type of things will help boost the immune system? Well, you know, you take your vitamin D. Those are things that people talk about. Things like zinc, people talk about that. And there's a whole bunch of different herbs that people use, things like echinacea, things like golden seal, things like ginseng, ashwagandha, and there's a whole slew of them. The difference is with with a lot of these herbs, what the things the herbs do is that they boost the immune system by boosting several different parts of the immune system, okay? Mm -hmm. So, for example, it may make the white cells more active. It may make the white cells more productive, meaning that they'll produce more antibodies, right? It primes the parts of the immune system that produces antibodies to pump out more antibodies. It primes the part of the, the system that pumps out more white cells to produce more white cells, right? But like anything else, the body can only do so much with what it has, right? Yes. Now, let's go on to a little bit about those are the general aspects of the immune system. Now, a lot of medical doctors will say, oh, you can't boost the immune system. And I say to them, but whenever I take a vaccine, what I'm actually doing is boosting the immune system. So how can you say to me, I can't boost the immune system? Okay, you've probably heard that argument many times. Of course. Right? Yep. You know, so when you take a vaccine, you're actually boosting your immune system. But the vaccines work differently. The old traditional way of doing the vaccines 
they would take a dead virus, not one though, because one dead virus is not going to boost the immune system at all. So what you do is you get a whole bunch of dead viruses, and when I say a whole bunch, I'm talking about maybe millions in one shot, or even billions in one shot, and you stick that into your arm. Now, what those vaccines do, because they're dead, the viruses are dead, they can't come to life, right? So they can't penetrate into your cells, and they can't hijack your cell replication apparatus to pump out more copies of this virus. But what it does is that when it's sitting in the bloodstream and it goes around, the white cells see it and say, holy smokes, where did, we, where did all these um, viruses come from? Because they recognize the dead bodies. Okay, And so when it sees the dead bodies, what happens? It triggers an immune response. So the white cells are then more hypervigilant for these particular viruses. So anything that even smells like these viruses they recognize and, and they produce more antibodies, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's how they prime the system so that when you actually get an attack of a, of a live virus, right, it recognizes it and hopefully it kills it off before it even gets to the point where you get 5,000 live viruses coming in, okay, before it even replicates, all right. And that's why it, vaccine will work. And that's why, for example, with the influenza vaccine, it changes from year to year. They, they try and estimate like which virus is going to be more prevalent. And, you know, that may be one in 2019 might be different in 2022. That's right. Because, well, these viruses mutate too, right? right so yeah. It's a constant war going on. So the viruses mutate. And when they mutate, what happens? They, the analogy I would say, they have different weaponry, right? right? And because they have different weaponry, if, if we don't fight them, the immune system doesn't recognize the weaponry, etc., or better camouflage, I would say. Not weaponry, better camouflage, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, you know, you, you have a whole bunch of viruses coming in that, that kind of look like, but it's not exactly like, so the immune system gives them a pass. And next thing you know, that's how they invade the system, right? But then we have the new type of um, virus, the new type of vaccines now called mRNA vaccines. Yes. Right. And now people think this is something new, et cetera, et cetera. What's new is the technology to stick it into your arm, right, to get it alive and sticking it out. Because one of the problems with mRNA is that it is very, very easy to get damaged. And if you damage the mRNA before it gets into your system, it's just basically garbage coming into your system, right, meaning that it's useless. It's not going to do anything for you. Okay. Right. Yep. Where the big technology thing happened was when they were able to put it in a stable format so that they could inject it into you and it's still active. Right. That's where the technology was. Now, mRNA has been kicking around a long time. People knew about mRNA for God knows how long. I would say at least over 50, 60 years. Okay. So it's not something new. And in the body, this is how, if you want to make a protein, if you want to make an enzyme, because all enzymes are protein, if you want to make an antibody, all, all antibodies are protein, right? This is what happens. Your cell, in your cell, you have something called a nucleus, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So if you think of the cell as a big balloon, inside that big balloon, you have a smaller balloon, right? Mm-hmm. That smaller balloon is your nucleus. And you have a whole bunch of little balloons around, floating around, like your mitochondria and so on, right? Mm-hmm. But... Where the nucleus hangs out is where the DNA is. And in order to make a protein, the DNA has to be translated. And they translate the DNA into something called mRNA, right? And the mRNA then leaks out through the nucleus balloon into your regular, the rest of the cell. And then the mRNA then migrates to certain parts of the cell, which then actually makes the antibody, okay? Mm-hmm. 
So what the mRNA vaccine, no, I should point out also that nuclear membrane where the mRNA comes out is a one-way door. You can't get it back in. So because of that, you know, the mRNA really can't do anything to the DNA. Okay? Yes. Now, when the mRNA vaccine did, what happened was that the scientists of the world were able to figure out what the protein sequence was for the spike protein on the surface of the virus. Yes. And from that, they were able to translate it back into the mRNA. Right. So when they inject you with that mRNA vaccine, all right, what happens is that the mRNA gets into your cells. It gets from the cells. It starts making spike protein in your cells. Right. And then your spike protein comes out into the bloodstream. Now, remember, the, the spike protein is just a thing on the surface of the virus. So there's no virus. Virus is not around. So it can't hijack anything to make more copies of itself. Right. So when the spike protein comes out, what happens then is that the body sees, hey, where are all this stuff coming from? These are all enemy soldiers because we recognize the spike protein now. So it starts pumping out antibodies, right? Mm -hmm. And because it starts pumping out antibodies, the antibodies now prime your system into saying, hey, be on the lookout for these spike protein things, right? And this is how it works, right? So with that, it basically primes your body to pump out these, to, to recognize the spike proteins, Right, and so that way it is able to vaccinate you, meaning to, to prime your immune system to recognize it. Right, so I know a lot of people are thinking, well, you know, this mRNA when it gets into you, it'll go backwards into my nucleus and affect the DNA, etc. No, it doesn't do that. It can't do that, right? Because it's, it's just the nature of, of the, the physics, etc. It just can't go back in. It's a one-way door. So we don't have to worry. So some of the mythology that's out there and excuses for not taking the vaccines is that some people are of the view that it impacts the DNA. That's what you were referring to there, right? That's what I'm referring to, right? But again, one of the things I've always said about, I mean, uh, about vaccines, etc. Vaccines have basically saved us from a lot of grief. Of course. I mean, you think of things like polio. You think of things like smallpox. You think of things like tetanus. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, all of those things. No, I know there are people who will go out there and say, you know what, if I get, for example, chicken pox, it's not a big deal. Right. Mm-hmm. But what they don't realize, if I have a million people getting chicken pox and if it's one percent of the people get really, really sick. Right. And die. One percent of a million people is, let's see, it's uh, 10,000 people. Yep. Right. 10,000 people is a lot of people. It is. Right. And what people don't also realize, things like the COVID, is the long-term effects. Not everybody gets the long-term effects. We know the death rate is roughly about 3%, okay? Yes. Roughly, mm-hmm. right? But the long-term effects is higher than the 3% because there's a lot more people going into the hospital and coming out, but the long-term effects is much longer. And I know there are people who say, well, when I get a vaccine, I might get a bad reaction in the sense that I'll get a fever, et cetera, et cetera. But in all fairness, the fever is only one day, you recover, and uh, you're none the worse for it, okay? Mm-hmm. If you get the COVID and you end up in the hospital, chances are you will come back out and you become what they call a long hauler, yes. right? And, the, and some of those people I know, they walk two steps and they're looking for air. These people's lives have changed. People's lives have changed. And to me, it's a cost-benefit. I mean, I might get sick, but you know what? I'll recover and be none the worse for it. You know, I might as well get the vaccine and call it a day. I appreciate you coming on the show. 
and expressing in scientific terms a very compelling argument to get the vaccine because yeah. I'm, I'm with you 100%. So thank you for coming on the show today, Gordon. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Sorry, I didn't want to sound too preachy. No, no, you were the perfect amount of preachy today, Gordon. <laughs> that was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss peanuts as part of a healthy diet on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Echinoforce by A. Vogel is clinically proven to prevent and treat multiple virus strains. Made with fresh, organic, GMO-free plants, it's 10 times more effective than dried echinacea products. Safe and effective for the whole family, including pregnant and nursing women. Order Echinoforce online at avogel.ca and get 20% off with promo code TONIC20. Echinoforce is also available where natural health products are sold. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dr. Samara Sterling is a nutrition scientist with expertise in the use of plant-based nutrition for the prevention and treatment of chronic diseases. She currently serves as the research director for the Peanut Institute and has also worked as a nutrition consultant for various community-based nutrition projects. She holds a bachelor's degree from Stony Brook University, a master's degree from Andrews University, and a PhD from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing well. Good to be back, Jamie. I'm still going to say Happy New Year. We're allowed to do that, I think, until March or April. Maybe that's a bit long. But this time of year, obviously, New Year's resolutions are very popular. But, you know, this show, kind of, our view is that they don't necessarily work for everybody. Why do you think that we do such a poor job of keeping resolutions? Yeah, I think you're right. You're right that we don't necessarily do a good job at keeping New Year's resolutions. And I mean, if we think about them, they're noble in theory, right? A lot of Of people make them because they think of them as a fresh start. The only problem is that about 16% of people are actually able to follow through with their resolutions. So 84% of us fail at that. And a couple reasons for that. Number one, the resolution tends to be super vague. And what that means is an example of a vague resolution is I want to be healthier this year or I want to eat well and exercise. Well, when we talk about long-term goals, it's really important to be specific because we want to help ourselves create routines that essentially become good habits for us. So instead of saying something like, I want to exercise more, try, I intend to go walking three days a week. Uh, That's a bit more of a specific goal. And then the other reason I'll mention is that resolutions, sometimes we make them too lofty. So the goals are too lofty, and when they're too lofty, it's easy for it to become overwhelming. So whenever we're trying to create long-term habits, it's best to break our large goals down into small, actionable steps where we can think of them and literally say to ourselves, that's not bad, I can do that. And over time, what happens is that we're able to 
build on those steps until, you know, we find ourselves reaching goals that may have seemed maybe lofty a year or so ago. So I'd say the trick is little by little. Instead of I'm going to eat six servings of fruit each day when maybe you haven't really been eating fruit at all, Start off with a goal of one serving each day, build on that every couple months, and that way we can help ourselves build long-lasting habits. I agree. I would add one, and I think it ties into what you've said, and that is whatever your goals are, they have to be sustainable. Like, I think you were talking about lofty goals, but, like, I I would be even more practical with them. Like, if you actually can't do them or you don't enjoy whatever it is you intend to do, it ain't going to happen. Right, right. I I think that's so key as well. You want to be able to enjoy your goals, take small steps towards your goal, because like you said, it's not going to last if you hate it. So you're a nutrition scientist. What are some of the recommendations you have for those who might be looking to change their diet and eat healthier? Well, for changing your diet, eating healthier, when you're thinking of a healthier diet this year, I like to say it's best to think of it as a lifestyle and not a restrictive diet because dieting tends to have a negative connotation to it. You think about what you're restricting, right? Mm -hmm. But try not to focus on what you're avoiding. Of course, there may be some foods that we want to limit or avoid, so you may not want to eat ice cream every single day, but the key is to put your emphasis on what you want to include in your lifestyle. And remember that small changes really do make a big difference. So we know, for example, that just adding one serving of whole grains to your plate can give you B vitamins, fiber, and that can help with heart health and energy. We also know that a handful of peanuts, two tablespoons of peanut butter, that can also give a lot of host, a host of benefits that will help to power you through the day. So the key here is focus on the foods you want to include regularly on your plate and make small changes to include those foods. Okay, so you mentioned peanuts. Forgive this horrible pun, but in a nutshell, what are some of the health benefits of peanuts or peanut butter? Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't realize that peanuts and peanut butter, apart from being a tasty snack, really do have quite a bit of benefits. Over 19 vitamins and minerals, healthy fats in peanuts and peanut butter. They provide health benefits from head to toe. It's a great source of plant-based protein. So if you're looking for a complement to your fitness routine, it's a great thing to have. And one of the things about peanuts that I find to be unique is that as a superfood, we see benefits in a really small amount of consumption. I mentioned the serving size a little earlier, but I'll just say it again. For peanuts, you're literally talking about an ounce per day. That's a handful a day, which is something that most people can do. And when it comes to measurable health benefits, there are two main areas that eating peanuts and peanut butter can contribute to. These areas are disease prevention and overall wellness. For disease prevention, we're talking about things like reducing your risk for heart disease, diabetes, cancer. For those who may know others who struggle with these diseases, adding a small serving of peanuts or peanut butter in your diet daily can actually help with those symptoms. And then for wellness, We talk about fitness, building up good bacteria in your gut. Even cognitive and mental health benefits are there, as well as satiety and energy throughout the day. So we see a host of benefits there for eating peanuts and peanut butter, and I think your body will thank you for it over the course of the year. Okay, I I happen to love peanuts, and you know, a handful of peanuts is actually my go-to before I'm going to do my weight training or I'm rowing, that energy sort of carries me through. But I know that sometimes people are afraid if they consume peanuts, they're consuming more fat. Can you speak to that? Sure. 
And that is a good question. I think that question really comes from the 80s, the 90s, where we really kind of thought a lot about nuts being high-fat foods and that they're going to make you gain weight. And so a lot of people are concerned about that. And we still see that effect trickling today. Well, we do have research over the past 20 years that has consistently shown that eating peanuts and peanut butter, they actually don't contribute to weight gain. In fact, they do the opposite. They actually help with weight management and helping our bodies to be in balance. So there was a study that came out from Harvard University just a couple years ago that showed that eating peanuts and peanut butter regularly can protect against long-term weight gain. One of the reasons we see that is that the fats that are in peanuts are over 70% of what we call the unsaturated fats. These are the fats that are recommended for reducing heart disease. And then they also have a lot of the monounsaturated fats, the same fat you find in olive oil. So these are good fats that we don't necessarily need to be afraid of because they are beneficial for the body and will not uh, make us gain weight. They'll actually help us to control our weight. Right. So a moment ago, I told you my go-to before I work out is a handful of peanuts. Is there science behind that? Yeah. So for working out, one of the things that we see is that peanuts and peanut butter help with three main areas, and these are energy, recovery, and maintenance. The energy goes back to what you were talking about. Uh, Before you work out, you like to have that. Well, there is science behind that because we actually need the right kinds of foods to power us through our workout. How many of us have actually tried working out and then halfway through we're winded? That might be because we're not eating the right foods. Well, peanuts contain those healthy fats that we talked about, so they're an energy-dense food, and our body uses these healthy fats as fuel to help us hit the trails or gym or biking, like you were talking about. And then recovery, post-workout. If, for example, you're into strength training, our muscles tear and repair while we're doing that, and we actually need the right source of protein to help our bodies recover. So that's because protein is essential for acquiring the types of amino acids that help our, our muscles repair and grow and stay healthy, and including especially peanut butter can help with that. And then we just talked about the maintenance, which is where we talked about the weight loss being part of your resolution. So three stages of that, the energy, recovery, and maintenance makes peanuts and peanut butter a great addition to fitness routine. Okay. So I know that the research into peanuts is ongoing, and I know that you're sort of involved with that. So is there any research that you think the listeners might be interested in learning? Anything current? Yeah, there's exciting research that came out a few months ago, and uh, we're seeing that a lot of folks are really excited about it, and we continue to be really excited about it as well. I mentioned disease prevention. I mentioned overall health and wellness. I want to just touch on the cognitive and mental health, and I may have mentioned this last time we talked, but there was a study that came out from University of Barcelona in Spain a couple months ago. Ago, and it was published in the journal Clinical Nutrition. And it was done in healthy college students. The aim was to look at how eating peanuts and peanut butter regularly can actually affect brain health. By the end of the study, what was amazing was that the results showed that those who ate peanuts and peanut butter each day had better memory, including short-term verbal and nonverbal memory. They also had lower anxiety and depression scores as well as lower stress. 
It was the first of its kind of a study like this done in young, healthy adults. And what we actually saw was that it complemented another study, and this is really a brand new area of research that we're looking into right now, but we're seeing that the benefits seem to kind of follow us through our lives. So there was another study that came out that showed that older adults who did not eat peanuts and peanut butter regularly were up to 50% more likely to do poorly on cognitive tests measuring things like learning and memory than those who did. And so I think the benefits following us throughout life, knowing that that can help with cognitive and brain health and mental health, especially right now as we're dealing with a lot, that's one of the benefits that we see with peanuts and peanut butter. Fantastic. We have time for one last question, and that is, what is your favorite way of incorporating peanuts into your everyday diet? What's your go-to? Well, my go-to, apart from snacking, because I do have snacks right here at my desk to power me through the day, I also like Power Bowls. These are really quick, really simple. They're healthy. And for our listeners, if you're looking for quick, easy, versatile, affordable recipes, visit peanutinstitute.com. You can look at savory dishes like a quick pad thai. That is one of my go-tos as well. Sweet recipes like a healthier dessert, so we don't necessarily have to give up desserts this year, but let's try to make them a little bit healthier if we'd like to do that. Breakfast like peanut butter pancakes, and if you're a snacker, can help with mid-morning and mid-afternoon cravings. So check out peanutinstitute.com for some amazing recipes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was Dr. Samara Sterling. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss resilience through perspective on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Buston of The Tonic. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know, for what ails you. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Dr. Lise Janelle is a human potential expert and relationship coach with over 25 years of experience. Since 1989, she's helped thousands of professionals, entrepreneurs, executives, and artists take quantum leaps towards their vision of success. With an extensive background as a holistic chiropractor, Dr. Lees founded the Heart Freedom Method, a powerful mind-body tool that dissolves subconscious beliefs and unlocks transformative mindset to overcome self-sabotaging behaviors. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you? Thank you. Nice to be with you. I'm great. So we're going to talk about resilience today, which is an interesting topic. How does one become more resilient in life? 
my best advice for all my clients who come to see me is that, and I've asked this question to thousands of people, raise your hand if you've never had a huge challenge in your life. And so far, after asking thousands of people when I do public speaking and courses and seminars and things like this, only once did I have someone raise their hand. And it was a very young lady, and she said, me, and I'm scared because I don't know what's going to happen to me when I have a challenge. So if we're smart as human beings, what we do is we learn that in the midst of every challenge, there's the seed of an opportunity. So resilience in a relationship will be the same. When we face a challenge in our relationship, we can ask ourselves, like, how am I benefiting from this? What am I supposed to learn from this? Where is this leading me? Just like last week, I had a couple come to see me, and they had found a very challenging text that a partner had found. But to their credit, they both came here, and they worked through their challenge, and they ended up walking out after an hour with more love. Because instead of blaming her partner, she owned half the responsibility for what was happening, and they came to a compromise that was bringing them more love. So resilience for me in a relationship is the ability to face a challenge, but turn it around to your advantage. Well, it sounds to me like, you know, not to get too semantical, what you're talking about is taking a different perspective with these challenges. Is that what you mean to say? Is, is that where we're heading? Yeah, I can, uh, like to, to give you a good metaphor for this. It's a corny metaphor, but it's the perfect metaphor. So one day, the scientist is observing a butterfly coming out of a cocoon, and it's a huge struggle. And so to be nice to the butterfly, the scientist cuts the cocoon open. But by doing this, the butterfly has nothing to struggle against. So the wings are weak, it can never fly, and it dies like this. And usually if I was interviewed on TV, I always have a yin and a yang sign, you know, the Tao symbol. So you have the light and the dark side. So if you're listening right now and you can impregnate this picture in your mind, just know that for... Every action is an equal and opposite reaction so that if you are being challenged in a relationship, you can learn from this, you can grow in love. Or sometimes resilience also means that you need to know your values and you need to know your partner's own. Because my definition of love in a relationship is, is wanting the best for your partner while respect, respecting your needs. So resilience in that situation will mean, so let's say one, one day your partner and their car broke down and uh, you, you need a ride to work and you, they ask you for a ride and, and come, no, you're resilient, you're going to accommodate them and you're going to drive them to work that day. But the following day, their car is still not ready, but that day you have a big presentation and you know that if you drive them there, you're not going to be ready and this big promotion you might get is going to be in danger of not happening. So that day, resilience is for your partner to go, hmm, you know what? I'm just going to take an Uber. I don't need you to drive me. And that, you know, if you love your partner, you really make sure that you want the best for your partner while respecting your needs. So it's a dance. It's not black and white. It's not, you know, set in stone. It's going to be adapting to the moment and finding the bigger picture. Is this helping us grow more in love together? Or is this taking us away from love? What is love? So all of these questions happen in relationship, and it's it's beautiful. Okay, so some of us are more self-aware than others, and others are more aware of their environment than others. So is there a rule of thumb as to when we should start, you know, exercising these notions of resilience, kindness to our partner versus kindness to ourselves? Like, how do we find that balance? How do we know 
when to execute these decisions? That's a good question. In my opinion, we start now. The faster you become aware of yourself and your partner's needs, this is to have happiness in a relationship, you must be conscious. And to be happy in a relationship, I can guarantee you, two miserable people together, the story and they live happily ever after is not going to happen. So if you're in a relationship first, you need to understand your values. What makes me happy? And then what makes your partner happy? And then you end up sharing a bond together. So if, again, if I could give you a visual for people listening right now, if you take your index to your thumb on both hands right now, you have two circles. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency for people to confuse. If you put the two circles on top of each other, you can see there's one circle that's not there anymore. One becomes redundant. So this is not allowed to happen. So if you try to fit into your partner's life or they're trying to fit in your, in your life and try to be there and do everything for you, it's never going to happen because two circles on top of each other push each other. It's like two north poles of a magnet. It just pushes it, each other out. So your job, if you're one circle, is to make yourself happy. Your partner's job is to make themselves happy. And then you intersect the two circles. So you are best friend with each other. So it's really about becoming conscious. If you don't want to be conscious, if you're not interested in learning to be conscious, you're going to have a lot of lessons. It's going to be a lot of drama in your relationship because you're going to try to get your partner to make you happy. And that's a very immature situation. It's actually the first thing that happened when you're a baby. The first love that you experience is usually from mom and dad, but mom is nursing you and all that. So there's a tendency when you're a baby, it's normal, when you're crying, you, you raise your hands up and you want someone to pick you up, to shush you, to take the boo-boo away, to make you feel better, to make you laugh, to take care of your needs. And I work a lot with the subconscious mind and whether or not we are aware of it, what we end up recreating in our romantic life is what we have learned as a child about nurturing. So we end up in a relationship the Pavlovian bell ring, you've heard of Pavlov's dog? Yep. Most of us don't even realize we're being so ruled by our subconscious mind. Some specialists believe that up to 90 to 95% of what we do is actually pre-programmed in our consciousness. Like, wow. So you end up in a relationship and the Pavlovian bell rings. For those of you who don't know about Pavlov's, Pavlov was a famous Russian scientist and he had a dog, and the dog would be hungry, and Pavlov would bring food, and at the same time would ring a bell, and the dog would salivate. After a while, Pavlov did not have to bring food. He just had to ring the bell for the dog to salivate. Mm-hmm. So we get trained like this. So you end up in a relationship, the Pavlovian bell rings, and you can be 20, 30, 40, 60, 80 years old. And if you don't become conscious, you're actually going to react just like a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, looking to your partner to be the nurturing source of your life. So sure, you want your partner to be your best friend, but if you look in your life right now, if you have friends, do you expect your friends to drop everything for you, to stop living their lives, to make sure that you're happy? No, you share moments together. They're your friends. You trust them. It's not any different with your partner. You cannot make your partner happy just like your partner cannot make you happy. We're not 
children anymore. So <laughs> short answer to your question, when do we become conscious? I believe everybody should become conscious right now. If you want to be happy in a relationship, make sure that first you become aware of your values, that you work at making yourself happy. What are my values? How do I organize my time to give myself what makes me happy? And then what are my, my partner's values? And how can I want the best for them while respecting my needs? And it becomes a really fun game to play to create a consciously loving relationship. Okay, so we have time for one last question, and that is, how far can you go before you lose yourself in finding this balance? Like, you know, I think of it as almost like a pendulum swinging. So how do you make mm-hmm. sure that you're, you're not at the far ends, the extremes? Yeah, so... If we go back to the definition that I use for love is wanting the best for them while respecting your needs, make sure that you respect your needs. I've worked with quite a few clients who came to see me who had cancer, and I can tell you that once you start wanting more for your partner than for your own self, your health will suffer. So making sure that you know what are my needs. Pay attention to your needs. The, the key to a successful life is first, you need to know two things. First, you need to know you're worthy of love. And second, you need to admit your dreams and aspirations. And most people who come to see me don't have any clues about that. They don't understand where they lost their self-esteem, their self-worth. And many people don't even ask themselves, what is it that makes me happy? Because they're so afraid that if they ask for it, they're not going to get it. And then it's about organizing your time to make yourself happy. So spend time discovering what makes you, it's not selfish. If you're not happy, people are going to be miserable around you. So it's not black and white. It's a dance. You need to know your values, what makes me happy and what your partner's values are. That's good advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Lise Janelle. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to support aging skin on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of the Tonic Magazine. The Tonic is published six times a year and is delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. It's also available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And if you miss it, you can also read The Tonic online at thetonic.ca. Hey, if you like The Tonic Talk Show, I know you'll love The Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. V Mystery is a certified skin therapist and founder of Skin by V, a private facial studio in Toronto that specializes in awakening the skin through personalized and science-backed treatments. Skin by V also sells a selection of curated luxury skincare products, both online and in-store. With more than 25 years' experience in the beauty industry, V has worked on thousands of faces and developed a highly tailored approach to the art of facials. Welcome to the show, V. How are you? 
I'm very well, thank you, Jamie. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Surviving the cold, surviving, surviving the ravages against our skin, which is what we're going to talk about today, right? Absolutely, absolutely. This cold is definitely doing a number on a lot of our skin. So, yeah, I'm super excited to chat about this. So what happens to our skin, you know, as we go through so many winters and we have the ravages of age? What happens? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, obviously, this cold, the extreme cold outside and then heading indoors, that warmth that we love to feel once we come inside, as great that as that is, but that instant climate change, sometimes our skin really struggles with that. So it can create a lot of excessive dryness, which obviously leads to a lot of flaking on the surface of the skin. It can also create a lot of dehydration. But most importantly, it creates trauma. When the skin is in a state of trauma, it is compromised. It's going to lose lipids. It's going to lose that water in the skin, which then just escalates into possibly congestion, which is on the superficial layers, those bumpies underneath the skin. Um, It can also lead to a lot of rosacea, redness, sensitivity, inflammation. And then that also in turn breaks down our protein cells. Our protein cells are fibers, which are elastin, our collagen. The scaffolding of the skin that gives us that youthfulness, that becomes compromised. And I presume as we get older, our ability to rebound from all this is compromised as well, right? Absolutely. We just don't, uh, we're not able to create that cell turnover as quickly as we used to when we were sort of um, the age 20 and under. Um, Our cell turnover starts to delay in terms of how quickly it's turning over, which is also why we sometimes notice that our skin just doesn't have that beautiful luminescence to it, that radiance to it, that glow to it. And so, yeah, those things do become compromised. So if that's true, what can we do to support our aging skin? What can we do to help it? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, my biggest approach is not necessarily just throwing stuff on the skin because um, that's a great way to really help with that superficial rebuilding or repairing. But we really also need to look internally. So we need to make sure that we're drinking plenty of water, um, limiting some of um, our things that could create glycation. So when I talk about glycation, anything that's going to break down our protein cells, as I mentioned, those are your collagen and your elastin fibers. So you want to limit maybe your sugar intake, Um, That could be anything from sweet desserts also to any types of wines and cocktails. We also want to make sure that we have a balanced diet. So you're getting, you know, the balance of all your nutritional levels and supplements. I think those are absolutely key and more than often forgotten about. So supplementing your skincare is essential. So look internally first. Make sure that you're doing all of those wonderful things and those things are balanced. And then in terms of skincare, you really want to look for products which contain things like hyaluronic acid, which obviously holds a thousand times its own weight in water, which really will help give us that juiciness to the skin. Vitamin A is an amazing um, boost to help with collagen and elastin. And then collagen itself, those sorts of ingredients are really great great to kind of drive to to help with that usefulness. Okay, so I've heard of the phrase exfoliation. Uh-huh. For those who don't know, 
Yes. And I'm not going to tell you whether I actually know what it means or not. <laughs> but for those who don't know, could be me. Uh, yes. What is it and why is it relevant? Yeah, absolutely. So exfoliation is great because it really helps kind of boost that process that I was talking about where our cells are renewing. So what we're doing is really kind of helping encourage those new healthy skin cells that are much deeper in that dermal level of the skin to come towards the surface of the skin and then slough away our dead skin cells. So um, we have three levels in the skin, um, the hypodermis, the dermis, and the epidermis. The epidermis is the most outer layer of the skin. And right on top of that is something called the stratum corneum. This is where our skin cells have migrated to the top. They become dead, keratinized, very flat on the surface. And if we can exfoliate a little bit more regularly, we can help slough away this buildup on that top layer of the skin. And that's what's giving us that beautiful radiance to the skin. So it's going to also help penetrate our products better because there's not this dead layer of skin creating a barrier and stopping those beautiful things to activate more on a deeper level. Okay, so before we mentioned that as you get older, it's harder for us to regenerate ourselves. Is exfoliation still a good idea, even if we're up in years? Yeah, you know, exfoliation is great. There's multiple different ways to exfoliate the skin. My favorite ways are definitely more chemical exfoliators. These can be controlled in terms of how aggressive they are and where they're penetrating. So when I talk about that, we're talking about lactic acid. We're talking about um, glycolic acid, BHA, alpha hydroxy acids. These are all different levels of acids, which in its molecular form is is able to penetrate at different depths in the skin. So I would suggest doing more of a chemical exfoliator, depending on what your main skin concerns are. What other ways of exfoliation exist if, if you're not yeah. doing chemical? Uh-huh, absolutely. So there's um, physical exfoliants, which is uh, granular exfoliants. Right. Um, and then there's the mechanical exfoliants. So if you're using any type of tools to help manually exfoliate the skin. Um, I'm not a big fan of those two last exfoliators, to be honest. Um, I find that some people can get a little bit more aggressive and then in turn actually create more trauma than good on the skin. Okay, so we're not going to try and beat up our faces, but sometimes it's, no. nice, sometimes it's nice to have a facial massage. Why is that and how does that help us with our skin tone? Absolutely. So uh, we have um, 40 plus muscles in our face, neck and decollete. These muscles are just like our body. We need to get them moving. We need to keep them um, exercised um, per se. So when we do facial massage, we're helping sculpt, lift and contour the muscles back where they should be. Um, as we age, obviously, everything starts to move down south slowly. So we're almost think about it like a push-up bra. We're just a lot it right up back where it needs to be yeah. um, and when we do create that massage technique even if it's just for a few minutes morning and night in your skincare routine what you're able to do is increase that blood circulation which brings fresh oxygen to the cells it's feeding the cells we're helping everything get moving and that creates a beautiful rejuvenation process it's helping feed and nutrient like giving nutrients to the cells that's what it's doing okay so i've never given myself a facial massage like how do you do it like if you're at home what do you do 
Yeah. So the most simple way that I explain um, facial massage is you don't need to complicate it. Always just remember, move upwards and outwards. So what I mean by that is you want to follow up the decollete, up into the neck area, always towards um, the outer hairline of your face, neck. And these are where we have some of our lymph nodes, our draining points, so we're able to help remove any type of lymph buildup that might be in the skin. You never want to go round and round in circular motions, and I hate it when I see people dragging their skin down. Gravity is doing that for us. What we really want to see is that lifting. So always upwards and outwards, and um, those things are super easy to do. Okay, one last area I want to explore is cryotherapy. Can you explain what that is and how it works and how it helps us? Absolutely. Cryotherapy is one of my favorite, favorite things to talk about. As I mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, um, our skin, when it's in a traumatic state, it really does create a lot of inflammation. Cryo in the most essential way, the most simple way to explain it is when we bring down the temperature in the skin. What happens is when we bring that down, we create this beautiful, calming, soothing, regulating that blood circulation and um, really creating that beautiful, controlled look to the skin. What happens is when you finish your cryotherapy, whichever means way you use that, the body temperature starts to rise again. What happens is when the body temperature rises, there's this surge of oxygenation. So new cells, new nutrients, new oxygen is coming and being driven to that area. This instantly creates a beautiful tightening and a more sculpted look to the skin. So it's great for anybody struggling with enlarged pores, any type of fine lines and wrinkles, dehydration lines. Um, It really does help sculpt and lift. One of the things that I love to include is I launched um, a beauty tool called the Gua Sha Cryo Stick late, uh, early November last year. And this is phenomenal because it put together two beautiful techniques, one which is the cryo, one which is the gua sha, which is a beautiful way of sculpting, lifting, um, and encouraging that lymphatic drainage to the face. And when we use that tool, which comes straight out of your freezer, we're able to bring down that temperature, like I spoke about, increase um, that blood circulation, and get that sculpting and lifting. So cryo is essential to everyone's routine. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh my God, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was V Mystery. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Samara Sterling, Dr. Lise Janelle, and V Mystery. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, West Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. 
On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Boston wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.